when it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. Welcome to FT Politics, a weekly discussion on what's happening in Westminster from the Financial Times. I'm Sebastian Payne. This week, we'll be discussing the Brexit delay and whether the UK will be leaving the EU on April the 12th or May the 22nd, and why the Prime Minister delivered an extraordinary speech to the nation from Downing Street. Plus, could we really be heading for a no-deal Brexit? I'm delighted to be joined by our Brussels Bureau Chief Alex Barker, columnist Robert Shrimsley, Chief Political Correspondent Jim Picard, Deputy Opinion Editor Miranda Green and Whitehall Editor James Blitz. Thank you all for joining. And if you find yourself liking this episode of FT Politics, then do subscribe through all the usual channels to receive it every Saturday morning. We also like nice reviews too. This week should have marked Britain's last EU summit, a farewell after the Brexit withdrawal agreement was put into law and Britain was about to start its new future outside the bloc. But as we know, things haven't quite turned out that way. Theresa May's deal has failed to get into law twice, spectacularly, and no one honestly really knows what is going to happen next. Is this the end of the deal? Or possibly the end of Theresa May? Or even the end of Brexit? All these options now seem to be on the table. So, Jim Picard, let's begin with the first notable thing this week, which was Theresa May's speech on Wednesday, because up until now, the Prime Minister's strategy had been quite clear. She wanted to narrow the choice for MPs between her deal and no Brexit through a long extension. That was what everyone was doing. It's what the government was saying. It's what MPs were expecting. But then suddenly they had the cabinet meeting on Tuesday and Mrs May changed her mind and flipped the question back from my deal versus no deal Brexit. And that really surprised everyone. What was going on there? Yes, exactly. It began at the cabinet on Tuesday where she was ambushed by a horde of Eurosceptic cabinet ministers such as Chris Grayling, Andrea Leadsom and others saying to her, we can't possibly countenance you keeping on the table this idea of a much longer extension to Article 50. It either has to be a short one or nothing at all. And instead of facing them down and saying, maybe I don't need Chris Grayling to be my transport secretary, she buckled in the space of a few hours. And when we woke up on Wednesday morning, the letter to Donald Tusk appeared. The broadcasters got hold of it about 6am, saying that there would just be this short extension or nothing. And suddenly, all the political equations in Westminster changed. And it really, really felt like no deal was not only back on the table, but quite a real prospect. So, Alex Barker, before we get to the summit, was the EU expecting that letter that said she would only countenance a short delay because all of the conversations up until the letter was actually sent were talking about a two-pronged approach where it would be a short delay if the deal was passed or a long delay if it wasn't. And people like David Liddington, who's the de facto deputy prime minister, he had been out saying, well, we need to have a long delay if this thing's not going to get through because we can't possibly have a no-deal Brexit. I can't stress to you how confused 
mixed up muddle this whole letter process was in Brussels. I mean, it wasn't just a matter of David Biddington saying that the long option was there. I mean, he was in Brussels meeting Europe ministers, MEPs, telling them about this nine-month extension option at the same time as the cabinet were scrapping it. And it went beyond that. There were more to and fro's on the evening of Wednesday where the letter was coming, it wasn't coming. The Prime Minister was trying to keep in a bit of the language about long delays and then it disappeared. And in the morning itself, before the letter was sent on Wednesday, in the morning itself, there were British officials telling their European counterparts that we were going to ask for a three-week extension and that this would be orally delivered by the Prime Minister at the summit. And then they were told it was going to be by a letter. And then the letter arrived a few hours later, and it asked for a three-month extension. So you can imagine how this kind of throws the people who are supposed to be you know, preparing these kind of summits, preparing their prime ministers and ministers for what to expect, working out what kind of response to provide. And the chopping, changing views of the UK hasn't help to create a sense of there being control in the UK and the level of authority you'd need to push a deal like this through. Robert Shimsey, what did you make of this confusion about the letter? Well, I think what we've seen in the last seven days has been the final disintegration of the May premiership. I think there were a couple of key moments. Jim mentioned one, which was the cabinet meeting where she was beaten up by her ministers. There were two before that. The week before, nearly 200 Tory MPs voted against an extension when it was discussed. And then when John Burko ruled that she couldn't put her meaningful vote when she intended to before the European summit, the no deal option got back on the table. And I think she finally accepted something which we never believed she thought. Actually, she came to the view that no deal was the second best option after her own deal. She was persuaded in this by people like Julian Smith, the chief whip. She has taken the view that the Conservative Party cannot take an alternative position and that if she cannot get her deal through, no deal is what it's going to have to be. And I think that she flipped policy as a result of that decision. And that's why you have the confusion over the letter. That's why David Liddington was left swinging in the wind among European politicians, because actually Theresa May disastrously changed strategy, having had a strategy that was actually working or showing signs of working, pulling the hardliners into line. She's completely switched. She's lost all the hardliners. She hasn't gained the soft Brexiters and Remainers, which is why we all think she's looking at a major defeat on her meaningful vote. This was an extraordinary moment before we forget, Jim, as well, John Burko, first thing in the week, because Theresa May had taken her deal twice to the House of Commons already, and the Speaker stood up and announced, to the surprise of, I think, everybody in the government and most MPs, of saying, you can't keep bringing this thing back unchanged, and cited hundreds of year old bits of parliamentary procedure to say that this was not the case. Now, there are many ways around this. talked about you could obviously change bits of the deal you could make an argument the deal has changed you could pass a motion to get around the speaker you could even abandon the parliamentary session and call up her majesty to start it all up again but that again just as robert said plays to this sense of confusion and the real story of this week that the whole plan if there ever was a plan has now entirely come off the tracks yeah i mean it's certainly another hurdle thrown up in front of poor hapless Theresa May. And it's not quite true that it came out of nowhere in that, I mean, I ran into a Labour second referendum MP at 3.15 on Monday who looked completely delighted and said, I think Burkow's surprise statement is going to be about trying to block a third meaningful vote. So 
someone close to the Speaker appeared to have told opposition MPs they just hadn't told Number 10. His sort of citing precedent in 1604 and all the rest of it that you can't take the same thing back again and again. I mean, he's kind of got a point and there is precedent for this. And the presumption in Westminster is that it prevents her doing it again and again and again. I think people still think that she'll be able to come back for her third meaningful vote. But um, I was at the lobby this morning where we had the number 10 briefing and their argument seems to be quite tenuous about what's changed since meaningful vote two. So they're basically going to say that the stuff that was agreed at Strasbourg, those concessions and written promises over the Irish backstop, well, that was obviously more than 10 days ago. But since then, the European Council has agreed to them and they've been written down. So we think that's a substantial enough change to go back again next week and try again. I mean, don't be flabbergasted if the Speaker says, no, that's not enough of a substantial change. So following this, Robert, the Prime Minister then did one of her podium moments that evening where she made an address to the nation and it reflected what was said in PMQs that day, what had obviously been discussed around the Cabinet table. And it was a really remarkable speech from the Prime Minister who tried to pin the blame for all this on Parliament. And she was saying, you the people are fed up, you're bored of this, I am on your side and it's these MPs who are frustrating it. These MPs keep saying what they don't want, they won't say what they do want. So please, let's get on with this. By the way, we're not going to have European Parliament elections, we're not going to have a long extension. And she managed to infuriate all three of the key groups she's been trying to win over because the Eurosceptics felt, oh, OK, fine, we'll just have no deal then. The Labour MPs from Leave supporting constituencies were particularly disgruntled. Jim, you did a lot of reporting on this this week. And the DUP have just seemed to be forgotten about. Yeah, it was an extraordinary moment. And I've wrestled slightly to decide which of two options I think it was. There's one scenario, which is that you know her advisers crafted a Elizabethan appeal to the people, show strength, show imperiousness, which works tremendously well when you've got a majority of 100, less so when you're in a hung parliament desperate for every vote. And the other half, it it looks rather like I sometimes feel when I get home and the kids' rooms are in a mess. I think, have I got to do everything in this house? And there was an element of just sheer exhaustion and frustration in there too. But the combined effect of her utter fatigue and her utter tin ear for how to talk to other politicians is that she let an awful lot of people off the hook. I think one has to add a degree of scepticism to this. It definitely did annoy MPs, but I don't think you actually vote to cast Britain out of the European Union in a fit of pique about a prime minister's speech to television. People who are looking for an excuse to not support her found an excuse in her speech. But they do seem to be genuinely aggrieved. Uh, And I know on one level it looks a bit peevish, but we've got to remember these are people who get death threats and harassed by members of the public and and are already feeling very sensitive about this. My only observation on that Theresa May's speech is that I've always thought if it came to the crunch and she tried to go down this whole Carl Wilson idea of you put your plan to a referendum in return for a load of votes, you would need to somehow couch that in language of I'm sick of Parliament, I'm sick of these squabbling adult children who just can't agree on anything and now I'm going over their heads to you the general public to let you make your minds up but but, but, when you're about to call an election yeah but she wasn't she gave a speech that would have worked well with different circumstances but not with so therefore you just have to do what I tell you Alex Barker how was that speech perceived in Brussels because you can see the Westminster view that we were just a bit surprised and baffled by it but was that the same view from the Brussels end the tone obviously surprised a lot of people here who are more used to the idea of building cross-party coalitions if you don't have a majority. And 
More importantly, though, when the Prime Minister arrived to give her pitch to leaders again for the third time, where she set out her stall, took a few questions, it very obviously didn't help. The leaders saw someone who wasn't very responsive. They saw a Prime Minister who wasn't very clear about what the fallback option was, who was very confident it would all go through, but couldn't necessarily explain how. And a lot of them left that thinking, as Robert was saying earlier, that she was ready to go for no deal, that she kind of almost given up, as some diplomats were saying to me, in terms of really being confident of pushing this through. And they took from that that they couldn't just let the short extension plan roll on because they would get to next week, nothing would have worked in Westminster, and it would be on them to save the day by offering another little extension or deciding to kick out the UK. And that was a position that they saw as weakness, that they saw as them having to take responsibility for a British problem, that they saw as something that might look bad in history. So they had to redesign the set of choices that are going to be faced over the coming weeks to try and put the onus back onto the UK that it's in charge of deciding its leaving date, its terms of exit, and if it wants to exit at all. It's really what you've seen with this new deadline emerge. It took a long time. It was a fascinating summit. I've rarely seen anything like this develop in the room. And, you know, they've turned up with an outcome that has reframed this, and they're quite satisfied about it. So that outcome is to essentially offer two future exit dates. So we're now assured that we are not going to leave the EU this time next Friday, then March the 29th is no longer the final date. What in fact is going to happen is if there is no deal, that has now been pushed back to April the 12th. So the first question, Alex, is is that absolutely final? And then the second date is towards the end of May, which is if Mrs May can find a way of passing her deal, that you will give her those extra weeks to get it into law. Look, it's much easier actually to think of April 12th as the date. That's the tripwire. That's the moment where the UK has all of its options in front of it and it needs to go down one path. If the deal is close to being ratified, you get up to May 22nd to push through the associated legislation you need to do. That's the kind of technical extension. The harder part is if there's no deal, the UK will need to explain what its plan is. If it involves a big political development, then they're going to need a much longer extension. And they've left open that possibility without explicitly saying it. On the other hand, if the UK can't explain how it might reach a majority, they've also left open what the EU's reaction would be. Some leaders, Leo Varadkar, for instance, were saying, we're not going to have rolling short extensions. That's it. Others were quite deliberate in making sure that none of that was spelled out in the decision of leaders. But I think a lot of them think that Mrs. May isn't going to be able to get this through, uh, that the government may not be able to survive, and they are leaving all of their options open to try and deal with those eventualities. Alex, one thing I wanted to ask you was, what do you think the UK has to do if her deal is voted down? How much information do they need about what the new plan is in order to grant the long extension if the indicative votes point to a customs union but nothing more has been done or if they point to norway or even referendum how much info do they really need 
in order to say, OK, the UK's moved on to a different path? I think if there is evidence of a majority on any of those paths, they would provide time for the UK to pursue that. Their instinct will be to say, look, you need lots of time. Actually, if there was a majority for a customs union in the political declaration, and that would be enough to get the withdrawal agreement through, frankly, they could negotiate that in two or three days here. It's pretty simple to do. It's a non-binding document that probably drafted already. So there will be a debate over the amount of time. But the key point is there's got to be some confidence that there's a majority there. And they're just not going to accept it on blind faith that it's okay if X and Y happens, we're going to have a domino effect with MPs and finally the majority will come around. They need a real sign that the numbers are there. And I think you need an indicative vote with a majority for that reason, probably. The only thing I would caution is that it's not that clear that there will be a majority for anything if and when these indicative votes do happen. And just to remind people, the last time this occurred in the House of Commons was, I think, 2003, where MPs were given the opportunity to look at indicative voting on options on House of Lords reform and none of those options had a majority in the Commons. So, Robert, just to finalise, the other thing that's emerged from this this week is Mrs May's position here and the erratic way the Prime Minister has behaved by changing her strategy, delivering this speech, all the confusion Alex was talking about, the letter, the lack of any sense in the Parliamentary Party, also a falling out between number 10 Downing Street and number 9 Downing Street, the Chief Whip's office, who have been treated quite badly by Downing Street throughout this thing. There's apparently been quite a big falling out there, has raised the question once more, are we witnessing in the end of Theresa May's premiership. Oh, absolutely. The only thing is the date. It's rather like Brexit in a way. We all know we're leaving. We just don't quite know what date yet. And I think the same is true of Theresa May's premiership. It is effectively over. The only issue is when people will get round to removing her or when she herself will call today. You know, were she to lose on the meaningful vote next week and there'd be some indication from Parliament of another position, she could well decide that that's it. She could attempt to stumble on a bit longer. But, you know, this is just a waiting room for departure now. She's done. Because crucially, Jim, we know that Julian Smith, the chief whip, has told her this week that MPs want her gone. We know that Sir Graham Brady, who's the chair of the influential 1922 um, backbench committee, he's been to visit her this week. We know that senior aides in Downshire have also acknowledged that time is really up for Theresa May. And I also know that leadership campaigns are beginning to think about, OK, we might need to get this thing moving next week if that is the case. So... And the fact that Theresa May was so clear this week when she said, I will not countenance a long extension, and she's rubbished all of the other Brexit ideas that might come through through indicative votes, be it customs unions, single markets, second referendums. So for Prime Minister May to suddenly take these other plans and deliver them just seems highly implausible. So I'm going to say a few things just to play devil's advocate. Firstly, just because she says she won't countenance a long extension doesn't necessarily mean that it won't happen. This is like true. the 2017 general election. Secondly, as of last December's failed coup, the plotters, in theory, have to wait till next December to formally oust her in an actual vote. And thirdly, is she the kind of person who realises when the game's up and she should just sort of stop struggling in the quagmire? She doesn't seem that, like that kind of person necessarily. And the other, I don't want to sort of sound like the older statesman of the podcast, which would be a ludicrous position to take, but if you cast your mind back to Gordon Brown back in 2008 when he had cabinet ministers knocking on his door 
begging him to go, resigning in droves. I think there was more than a dozen ministers went and Gordon Brown just shrugged them off. Or you look at Jeremy Corbyn, who literally had 80% of his own MPs signed a letter begging him to go and he had 60 or 70 resignations. But such is power and people who want to cling on to power that sometimes they turn out to be very, very difficult to dislodge. And finally, Alex, what's the Brussels perspective on the the departure of Mrs May? Because there's always been this sense they would rather deal with Theresa May than, say, Boris Johnson or more hardline Brexiter, who would probably be the most natural person to replace her. I'm not sure that sense has been there for some time. I mean, it's not that any of them want Boris Johnson to be sitting in that council room, but the lack of trust in Mrs. May is just complete. They do not believe in her authority. They don't really trust her to be able to deliver this plan. They think that her days are numbered. And I think that makes a difference in how they have approached this exit date. You can see this plan being set up for a government that might be on the brink of collapsing. And a lot of the leaders in that room also think that the potential for no deal is very real. It's a central scenario for some of them, and they are planning for that possibility in a very real way. They also were concerned that the Prime Minister's answers during the Q&A gave the impression that she may eventually go for a no deal. I think the key point is if you're the European Union, however bad someone else is, you do want someone you can actually be confident when they say, yes, I'll do it, that they'll be able to deliver. Meanwhile, the prospect of a no-deal Brexit is increasing all the time. Why is that? Well, the longer that MPs don't vote for anything they actively want and we just sit and twiddle our thumbs, the cliff edge draws nearer. That looked to be March the 29th, aye, this time next Friday. But thanks to the EU's extension, the cliff edge has now been pushed back to April the 12th, assuming there is no deal passed by MPs. So how real are the prospects of the UK crashing out of the bloc? Can MPs do anything to stop it? And the big question on the minds of Westminster this week, will Mrs May let it happen? Miranda Green, so the thing that seems to have changed, as we talked about earlier in the podcast, is this calculation by the Prime Minister that she was framing the choice between my Brexit deal and no Brexit vis-a-vis a long extension. That changed for whatever reason this week, and it was now back to that old equation, which is Mrs May's deal versus no deal. And the reason that that is so perplexing is because there are many Conservative MPs who are totally happy with no deal. So people like Jacob Rees-Mogg, for example, who have said, well, I'm only going to back Mrs May's deal because I don't want no Brexit, are now saying, oh, well, actually, we can just sit back and have no deal after all. So May's tactics, because it's far from being a strategy all the way along, has been to try and frighten both sets of MPs, the hardline Brexiters and the more Remainy types, to back her deal. So you're quite right, she flipped midweek into trying to terrify the other side by raising the prospect, a very real prospect of no deal on the 29th, which is next Friday. Now, you've found that the EU has given us a little bit more breathing space. So that hard deadline has been pushed back to April the 12th. But it's still a hard deadline. And I think what's really worried people this week is that the Prime Minister's own isolation politically has reached such a sort of extreme and peculiar place 
that you can see that she would contemplate actually taking us out of the EU without a deal. I think we all thought that she wasn't the sort of Prime Minister to do that and indeed that it wasn't what she believed was her Brexit responsibility. She thought her Brexit responsibility was to take us out with a deal, as she has said many times. But I think she's now so ensnared by her own desire to keep the Brexit right wing of the Conservative Party on side, that she sort of trapped herself. So in some sort of weird reverse jiu-jitsu move, rather than putting the frighteners on her parliamentary opponents, she sort of put the frighteners on herself and she might end up taking us out without a deal. And I think that's why we've reached the end of the week with a lot of people saying she's lost everyone's trust on both sides now and this really has to be the end of this premiership either sooner or later. We also have the possibility of the game changing next week if Parliament could take advantage of this little window of time that we've been given by the EU to change the game, come up with an alternative. The other thing, of course, about No Deal, James Blitz, is that the preparations are ramping up all the time because the government has spent months with various contingency plans with exciting sounding names to get the country ready for leaving without a deal. And it's a series of mitigations here because there's things that the UK can do. So it's set out its tariff regimes, how it would manage traffic around crucial borders, talk of thousands of troops on the streets. So all these things have begun to be activated because we had thought that cliff edge was the 29th of March. Now it's the 12th of April. It's still pretty close there. You know, in your judgment, what would no deal really feel like? Because there's obviously been an awful lot of people saying it would be the end of the world. And then on the other side, people saying, well, actually, it wouldn't be as bad as all that. Well, in my own judgment, if we left the EU without a deal, it would be immensely disruptive. And I don't think one can avoid saying catastrophic. I mean, there are two fundamental issues. One of them is that the UK does not have the infrastructure and logistics to allow us to leave the EU without a deal because of our extraordinary reliance, above all else, on the Dover-Calais Strait as an extraordinarily busy artery through which millions of trucks go every year. I mean, the figures is very briefly, once again, I always go back to them. Four and a half million trucks go through Dover-Calais and the Channel Tunnel every year, backwards and forwards. That is more trucks than go through the whole of the rest of the UK port system put together. So if you put the smallest infringement in there on goods going through, you create all these tailbacks. It's a real problem. One of Mrs May's fundamental mistakes was that when she became Prime Minister, she should have started by saying, I've got to fix that and widen the port system before I begin negotiations. She didn't. That's one problem. The second problem is no deal is not priced into financial markets. I think people constantly need to be reminded of this point. The assumption in markets is that we will leave with a deal. If on April the 12th, since March the 29th, as Miranda has said, has now been scrubbed out, if on April the 12th we leave without a deal, there is going to be a very, very significant market reaction, which will be felt globally. So for those reasons, I think the idea that it's a walk in the park is just absurd. It would not be. 
And the reason that we have to assume Mrs May has changed her calculation on this, James, is for party management reasons, because this question of will she put party before country? Well, she always does in nearly everything she said throughout this Brexit process. But the fact is the Conservative Party, or large parts of it, are pretty OK with no deal. They see it as preferable to a second referendum or a general election or no Brexit. So this decision she made after the Cabinet meeting where a lot of people spoke about against a long delay. She seems to have just changed that internal calculation, regardless of the country, but for her party. So this is a question for both of you, really, is do we think Mrs May would actually do it? Yes, I agree with what Miranda said. If I can go first on this point, because I think you made the point earlier, I just want to say I agree with you. I think what Theresa May did on Wednesday, both by the vault fast she did in the morning, by saying, actually, I'd only go for a very short extension if I didn't get my deal through, and then by an extraordinarily chilling appearance on the podium at number 10, where she was really talking, and I don't think it's an exaggeration to say, in a dictatorial way, by saying, I am the representative of the people, and Parliament, the sovereign Parliament, is not actually representing your interests. That, for the first time, left me thinking, we will always be able to say of Theresa May that she would have crashed the economy. I mean, I don't think we will have no deal, because I think in the end... And I hope Parliament will assert itself in the next two weeks and actually come up with an alternative way forward. If a deal goes down, if a deal goes through, fine. But if it doesn't, then I think the key thing now, as Miranda said, is that Parliament asserts itself. But I think at the end of this week, we can say for the first time, Theresa May would have crashed the UK economy for the defence of her party and herself. And that's an extraordinary thing to be able to say. And it's also an extraordinary thing to say about the modern Conservative Party. I mean, I've always found extreme party loyalty very difficult to understand, I have to say, in all my years of observing British politics. But what you've got now is you've got both main parties captured by their extremes and you have a party leader in Mrs May who thinks that loyalty to the Conservative Party should trump all other interests, including the national interests when she's actually in office and in power. The problem with that for me is also just a fascinating mistake on her part. If the Conservative Party is no longer the bastion of values to do with the economy and stability and prosperity, what is it that she's loyal to, you know, because the Conservative Party is not now the party of the economy. If we have a Conservative Prime Minister who can contemplate, I mean, there have been several moments this week which have felt like wake-up calls. I agree with James. The most dramatic one is that speech that she made on Wednesday night where she appeared to want to make the MPs the target of public rage, which is an outrageous thing to do. But it was also the moment when the heads of the CBI and the TUC together said, this is now a national emergency in terms of the economy and jobs. To have all of those involved in prosperity against a Conservative Prime Minister and their intentions to, as James has said, potentially crash the economy is an extraordinary moment. And I think one of the things that gives me hope that perhaps next week the MPs will assert themselves and avert disaster is that there have to still be enough sensible people inside the Conservative Party to realise that it is a disaster for them electorally to be seen in this way. And there is lots of talk of David Liddington, who is her de facto deputy PM, having very active conversations with the senior MPs on both sides as to how they could take control next week or at least provide a few alternative ways 
through. So even if May herself is now so isolated that she won't engage, there are people in in the cabinet and in her team who are willing to do so. And to add my two cents on that, I think I would agree with James very much so that she made it very clear in that speech when she said, I will not countenance a long extension. She was very clear on that and we'll come on to that in a moment. But the fact she was saying, it's my deal or no deal Brexit, that was very, very stark. And when I interviewed Anna Subri after she left the Conservatives to join the TIGs a couple of weeks ago, which feels like a lifetime ago, she did say one of the reasons I left is that I went into meetings with Theresa May and senior officials and came out absolutely convinced she would do no deal. And I guess nobody ultimately really knows this because people in the Cabinet have spent all week trying to guess what Theresa May thinks about anything and have come out none the wiser. And I think ultimately it comes back to her very caught in a circle in Downing Street with her husband, Philip May, who is the key decision maker in these things, and her two top aides, Robbie Gibb and Gavin Barwell, who have been very influential in shaping the strategy, even though she's now fallen out with the chief whip, who we've seen, which is an extraordinary state of affairs. Which brings us on to, will Parliament take control of this merry proceedings? Because last time we had the series of votes, James, the so-called Cooper Bowes or Cooper Letwin or whichever combination of MPs you want to put together, their amendment, which would have suspended the rules of the House of Commons and allowed MPs to put their own business first, that came within two votes of passing. That amendment is almost certainly going to be put forward again on Monday. One would assume that is going to pass because of the reasons Miranda was saying MPs do not want to allow no deal and this is a way to stop no deal. But let me put this scenario to you. That amendment passes on Monday. Let's say we have a meaningful vote on Tuesday and it doesn't pass. That would be the assumption of everyone I've spoken to today. On Wednesday, that kicks in and MPs then start voting on different forms of Brexit. So maybe they vote on a customs union. Maybe they vote on single market. Maybe they vote on some other form that we haven't thought about. There's a clear majority for one of those. Then what? Well... I think that's a very good scenario you've laid out, first of all, Seb. I'm still not 100% sure that there will be a majority for any of them. That's the first thing that worries me. I have in the back of my head, when I was political editor covering the Blair period in 2003, the House of Commons had a series of indicative votes on House of Lords reform, on what kind of reform that should be, to what extent the House of Lords should be appointed or democratically elected, and four or five options were put to the House of Commons. There wasn't a majority for any of them. This idea of indicative votes is quite complicated. There's a lot of gaming that goes on when they happen. And although I think there probably might be a majority for permanent membership of the customs union, the Labour position, I'm certainly not sure there's a majority for a second referendum, and I wonder if there is one for EEA. So I don't know. But let us suppose, to answer your question, one of those is put forward. Customs union, let's say. Let's say customs union comes forward. The question then arises... Is Theresa May going to be sitting there in number 10, going back to the European Union and presenting permanent membership of the customs union, the House of Commons decision, as the solution, given that it will completely deprive the UK of any possibility of signing independent trade deals and will be against the initial reason for Brexit? I don't know. I mean, I think one of the problems with all this is that even if the House of Commons comes up with a majority, it needs to find an executive to to negotiate it and implement it. 
And that's the bit I'm not certain about. I can well imagine a scenario in which the House of Commons has a majority, say, for permanent members of the Customs Union. May says, I can't put that forward. I resign. Another leader is then elected by the Conservative Party. And we get into a mess, basically. A leader like Boris Johnson can't implement the Customs Union. I mean, that's... It's a very rough sense. All I'm saying is it's a rough sense of the kind of confusion you can get into. And even if May's deal is comprehensively rejected, I'm not sure the way ahead is going to be straightforward. This is the issue, Miranda, because Mrs May has ruled out so many things. You know, she's ruled out a long extension. She's been very firmly against a customs union and very firmly against the common market 2.0 approach, which is staying in the single market and the customs union, that it's very hard to see that if her deal goes down again, and I'm not seeing anything that would suggest she's getting anywhere near getting a majority for that deal, that she is the person who could see through this cross-party approach, which brings us to the thing that's on everyone's mind once again, is will she be PM by this time next week? Quite so. I would say that the way that people are looking at that has changed, though, in the last few days. Whereas we were maybe even a week ago saying, oh, well, that can't possibly happen because May would never say that. It's now turned into May is not the person who can do this. Who else can we get to do it? So that changes the game completely. For example, the most sensible thing to do actually where we are is now to revoke Article 50 and to start again. But... As James has indicated, this is one of the list of many things that May has said she could never do. You know, if you have a new leader with a plan, potentially a Tory leader who was actually part of the Leave campaign... This is your Boris Johnson or or your Michael Gove. You might have enough political cover to take some quite radical decisions because, you know, it's like an incoming government. When they get into the Treasury, they have a bit of a grace period to say, oh, my goodness, now we've gone in here and looked at the books. I'm terribly sorry, but we can't cut taxes like we promised to because we've got to solve a problem that we've inherited. And a new incoming Tory leader would actually have a grace period to behave quite sensibly and come to an agreement with the other side of the House. Whether that will actually happen or not, I really can't say. I still feel that there might be a way, even with a new incoming Tory leader, to fiddle around with the political declaration and to, in some form, get this withdrawal deal through by making some promises about how Parliament might take take on stage two of Brexit. Because, you know, the awful thing about this wrangling over the withdrawal agreement is that it's a horrible initial taste of what might have years to go because how is Parliament going to handle substantive questions of our future relationship with the EU if we can't even pass a withdrawal agreement to get us to a safe transition? As finally, James, on this point, this comes back to the no deal question. I was talking to a Downing Street aide about this and they said, when you consider the no deal calculations, think of Mrs May's legacy. Because if she leaves as the PM who quit after failing to see through Brexit, spent three years negotiating a deal, negotiating with her own party and achieved absolutely nothing... Or if we do have a no deal Brexit, she will still leave as the PM who took us out of the EU, which many people will be unhappy 
happy with, but the Conservative Party might still be quite happy. So when you put all this together about new leaders and everything else, I think it's still worth stating the fact that whether the leave date is the 29th of March or the 12th of April, that is still the default outcome. If her deal doesn't pass and if you don't get a new leader in who can find some other form of Brexit that can get through the House of Commons, that can pass the EU's a lot of things that still have to go right to avoid a no deal. That is correct. And ultimately, when all is said and done, the thing that's got to go right, if Mrs May's deal is defeated on Tuesday next week, is that the MPs in the House of Commons have got to coalesce around some other solution. If they do that, all will be fine. Up till now, that has looked very difficult. The one thing which I think would give comfort, perhaps, as we look ahead, is that if Mrs May's deal is definitively defeated, if it's clear that it's not coming back, it does actually open things up quite a lot. Remember, one of the reasons why the Commons has never been able to coalesce around a new way forward is that when Mrs May's deal is defeated, she keeps on bringing it back. So the payroll vote continues to be that the government, the 160, 170 government MPs, constantly have to keep on backing her if that deal is out things do unfreeze you could imagine the sands really shifting in one direction or another that's the good news but you are absolutely right they've got until april the 12th and if they don't no deal is still hanging there in the background And also what complicates matters is the usual whipping operation on both sides of the house is sort of in tatters. And you've got these strange WhatsApp groups which are organising de facto factions in favour of different outcomes. How that can work in an organised enough fashion to deliver a majority for an alternative plan, who knows? Well, and that's it for this week's episode. Thank you very much to Alex, Robert, James and Miranda for joining us. In the meantime, if you've enjoyed what you've heard and would like to see some more FT journalism, then you know where you can find our latest subscription offers, ft.com forward slash offer. FT Politics was presented by me, Sebastian Payne, and produced by Anna Dedda. Until next week, thanks for listening. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. When it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com.